0: Welcome to South Asia Chat, uh, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. Uh, My name is Karthik Nachipan. I'm a research fellow uh, here at the Institute. Uh, Today we will be discussing uh, India's uh, recent IT rules, uh, an an updated set of rules that aim to cover uh, how social media companies uh, operate in India. Uh, The rules have been designed to check and curb uh, the growing power of big tech companies, uh, particularly social media platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. Uh, They have also been criticized for uh, giving the government more power over online content and expression. Uh, The impact of these rules uh, will start to become clearer uh, as they are implemented and challenged in court. Uh, To understand these new IT rules, what they are, uh, what they seek to do, and what their potential impact could be, Uh, we are joined by two experts who have deep expertise uh, in the areas that we will cover today, uh, media and journalism. Uh, Professor Nalan Mehta is Dean, School of Modern Media, Uh, at the University of Petroleum and Energy Studies, uh, and Dr. Narayan Lakshman is Associate Editor at The Hindu. Uh, I'm also pleased to add that in addition, uh, both Narayan and Nalin are non-resident senior fellows uh, at the Institute of South Asian Studies. Uh, Nalin, Narayan, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us,
0: Karthik. Thanks Um, very much, Karthik. I want to start with uh, Narayan first. Before we We weighed into the implications uh, of the IT rules. Can you just give us a sense of what they are, uh, who they target, and why they are important? Uh, And also, if you can, uh, why was the government compelled to release these rules now?
1: Yeah, so that that is uh, a most important question in terms of the timing, but let's first get the backdrop of what they are and why we're looking at them at this point. Uh, So the government notified new rules in February 2021 uh, requiring platforms such as, you know, WhatsApp and uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter, which it labeled as significant social media intermediaries to identify originators of what the government views as unlawful messages. Uh, Part of the new rules also requires these significant social media intermediaries to take down such messages within a specific timeframe. And thirdly, they require uh, these organizations to set up grievance redressal mechanisms. So for example, they'll need to set up a chief compliance officer, a nodal contact person, Uh, you know, who could respond locally to complaints and queries, and a resident grievance officer, and all of these officers need to be resident in India. And finally, the government rules brought in February also require that these intermediaries assist government agencies in ongoing investigations based on complaints or government queries. So at the time that they were brought, brought, or notified rather, the electronics and IT minister, Ravi Shankar Prasad said, they they require these intermediaries to tell us who started the mischief. So by that, they basically meant that it was a reference to the broader context in which social media have been on the rise in India as indeed across the world in many countries uh, to the point where they are very important, Uh, channels of information which have many millions of users and there are cases where this information is seen to be either unlawful or illegal or in some cases as activists and civil liberty activists in particular argue uh, they pose a challenge to the government either in terms of the government's reputation or in terms of dissenting opinion and that brings us which to another question, which I'm sure we will discuss in greater detail, whether there is a flip side to these rules, which is that they actually can have a chilling effect on free speech. So the context, uh, as I said, is not only the rise of these social media intermediaries in India, but also an intensifying cycle of spats that the government has had in India with, for example, uh, Twitter. So as we know, since last year, there was the protests that were happening in Delhi and indeed across the country over the farm bills that the government has brought, the new farm laws. And as part of that, the government, rather part of the response to that, the government has been making repeated uh, demands to Twitter to take down what it perceives to be unlawful content, often relating to the very accounts of you know, journalists, activists who are organizing the protests uh, with the farmers and so forth. And Twitter has not complied with some of those requests. Uh, and the government has similarly clashed on multiple occasions with WhatsApp over what it is alleged to be fake news. And WhatsApp has, uh, in some regards, while it has uh, has complied, it has also refused to, to compromise a very uh, sort of what it perceives to be a core uh, tool of its of its entire package, which is end-to-end encryption of its messages. So now this is where I think people who have jumped into this debate have asked, and uh, how other countries have dealt with with this question, because encryption in some ways is at the very heart of the debate. It is at the very heart of the promise sometimes the implicit, sometimes the explicit promise that social media holds out to its users, which is to say, look, you can put some of your personal uh, information online and you will not be penalized for it. You will not be punished in terms of retaliation, whether by government or by other private actors. So what we're looking at here is a set of rules that has been slapped on quite recently, but has been on the boil now for, the best part of a decade even several decades because the very root of of the legal sort of roots of this debate go back to the it act of 2000 which is the paradigm under which uh, all digital uh, digital packages digital information every digital property has been legally recognized from digital signatures to copyright issues in the digital space uh, That is the basis on which this entire debate is formed. Subsequently, the the growing power of social media uh, and indeed the growing number of users that they've had and the sort of reputational issues that the government has faced uh, or the legal issues that have arisen in terms of what are seen as unlawful or illegal postings uh, has then emerged out of the IT Act of 2000, leading to a growing number of rules that have been slapped on these intermediaries. So there was one set of rules that came on in 2011, and now one decade later, you're seeing of sort of building on that, the second set of rules, which was notified in uh, February, 2021. So I'll leave it there at at that, but I think there's a lot of uh, information within that to unpackage, and we can do that during this debate.
0: Great, Uh, Nalin, I wanna come to you. Uh, Can you maybe just take a little step back further? I mean, I think what Narayan gave us is a very good contingent understanding of a lot of the events, but maybe take a step back, go up perhaps from the 1990s or so. What has been happening in India's media system, its digital ecosystem, specifically in terms of uh, online news and content and and also the the relationship between these online news intermediaries and the government that has now uh culminated in these new it rules
2: right uh, karthik this entire debate on the new digital media guidelines and digital media ethics code which came out in february as as uh, narayan pointed out you know this has been framed as a political fight on free speech in the mainstream mainstream discourse on it. right? Um, On one side are the the people who say that this will be a huge attack on freedom of expression. Uh, On the other side, um, this is about sovereignty and nationalism comes into the whole thing. But fundamentally, if you take a step back, um, it reflects a far deeper global debate on big tech and sovereignty, which is happening in all liberal media democracies. India is not Uh, This is part of uh, what is happening in India is a reflection of of exactly the same debate that's happening in Australia, the United States in the EU for the last four or five years. The details uh, vary a little bit um, and the sequencing varies a little bit, but it's fundamentally part of that. I think this is the biggest debate on media in the last hundred years, uh, in general. And now, why do I say that? One of the reasons why the timing has been questioned by a lot of people is because in February, when the rules were, were brought out, um, this was in the context of just in that month, there'd been a whole thing around the toolkit uh, where the BJP spokesperson, Samit Patra's tweets had been pointed out as manipulated media by Twitter. Uh, the government said this is manipulated. This is a judice case. WhatsApp, at the same time, moved the High Court against new IT rules. He called them unconstitutional. Encryption is something that Narayan talked about. Um, WhatsApp, for the moment, has decided to put its encryption rules on hold until a digital privacy law is put put out. This is being argued in the Delhi High Court right now. Um, But fundamentally, uh, to take a step back, this is not something which has come out of the blue. This is not a comet from outer space which which, which wasn't being talked about earlier. the facts are this has been debated very significantly at the at between the government and the industry for at least three years now. Uh, in fact, as early as December 2018, a consultation paper was put out by the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology, draft rules were put out, uh, public comments were asked for. There were some 170 odd comments that came in from different media houses. Um, I was at that time running Times of India online, we were all, um, different media groups, we all gave our representations to the government on this, uh, including civil society, including individuals and so on, Um, there is a backstory to this. This debate has been on for a long while because it was felt that the IT rules which Narayan mentioned, they were not enough to to regulate the new political economic reality of the social media giants as it exists today. Um, And again, um, Social, saying social media giants is a little bit simplistic because there's far more to it. There's also about digital media news and so on. So I'll come to that. Uh, but factually, there, there have been Supreme Court orders on this. Um, the Supreme Court, for example, uh, in uh, sometime around September 2019, asked for a timeline from the government for completing the process of notifying the new rules. There has been this has been discussed in Parliament in the Rajya Sabha. There was a calling attention motion um, on the on social media and fake news and so on, where the government was asked to. Notify rules and so on. This was this was debated. There was an ad hoc committee of the Sabha, which is the upper house of the Indian parliament, which later report in February 2020. Um, and again, the question was about what is the originator of uh, things like pornography and so on? How do you get back to it? Which is at the heart of the encryption debate, which is also what the government is used to justify it. So while the timing uh, and the notification of this came exactly around the time when there was uh, a spat happening between WhatsApp and Twitter on um, on, um, on on Twitter in particular on, um, manip- on on manipulated media in inverted commas and WhatsApp on its uh, on its um, on the government saying uh, on on encryption which WhatsApp was refusing. There is a backstory which has been on for three years. Uh, everybody in the in the industry was preparing for this. And this has to be framed within a larger debate in liberal democracies happening in every country in the world. And and I'm I'm saying liberal democracies with India, uh, you know, we're not talking about uh, one party autocracies and so on. So that's one. Um, The second thing is that uh, what do the rules do? The rules do three or four different things. Uh, And to your larger question of, uh, in a sense, we are seeing a repeat of what happened when television came, satellite television came in the 1990s. See, sat- television was a state monopoly till the 90s. When satellite television came in, we saw about a seven, eight uh, years or about a decade of exactly the same pushes and uh, pulls, which eventually led to a half-baked uh, re- regulation to, to regulate television. And then a self-regulatory mechanism was put in sometime around 2008 after the Mumbai terrorist attacks, um, um, actually following the Mumbai terrorist attacks. We are seeing a... a, a, a The same debate playing out on steroids now with digital media because the stakes are far, far more uh, higher. Uh, So now there are issues with the regulations. There are several gray areas. There are several question marks. But should you have regulation? Um, That's a fundamental question. I think every liberal democracy in the world has has essentially argued that you should have regulation. What is that? What the question mark is? What should that regulation do? Is there scope for misuse for political purposes around that? And that's the debate we should have on the specifics of this course. But to say that there should be no regulation, I think is a uh, is something which um, uh, uh, um, no country in the world is debating that right now. Um, now, what do these rules say? These rules essentially bring in um, uh, the biggest issue is that with inter- the first is, let's say, intermediaries. Intermediaries are people uh, like uh, WhatsApp, Facebook. Now, what are the numbers? WhatsApp users today in India are roughly 53 crores. YouTube users are 44 crores. Facebook users, 41 crores, Instagram users, 21 crores, and Twitter is the smallest of the lot, which is about 1.75 crores. What what these rules do is that it makes it incumbent on intermediaries to provide a system for complaint redressal. That's one. Um, It becomes an issue of what is called a legal parlance safe harbor. So typically, and this came from American legislation originally, the idea of safe harbor, which is that an intermediary is just a platform and in that platform, whatever somebody, uh, you and I on any of these platforms, whatever content we put, the intermediary is not legally liable for the quality of that content. Right. Now, what the government has done is that they have said that under these laws, you have to follow the regulation followed in India. And if you do not, then we will, then their intermediary status becomes suspect. You cannot follow the laws of the United States in India. You have to follow the laws of India in India. And that's a fundamental issue. Um, Now, what does that mean? Uh, And what do they want from this? They have made a distinction between smaller intermediaries who have lesser users and larger intermediaries. Uh, And they've defined that. If you have more than X million number of users, then you are a larger intermediary. And the larger intermediary has to have a three-tier grievance redressal mechanism. They have to have a code of ethics of publishers. They have to have a self-regulation architecture. They have to have disclosure of information. Um, So, for example... Um, for the larger intermediaries, they have said you must have a chief compliance officer who's a resident of India, who lives in India. It cannot be somebody who lives in Silicon Valley. And um, uh, If you have to have timelines, if somebody complains about some kind of content, um, let's say in the case of, say, child pornography or in the case of sexual harassment, um, it can be political as well, which is what has often happened. You have to have a timeline of X number of hours in which that complaint is acknowledged, A, and that can be automated you have to have X number of days in which you have to resolve that complaint, either saying it's frivolous mm-hmm. or, uh, or, or, or or taking action on it. And there are timelines put on this. And for the larger intermediaries, they have said, you must publish an annual report of what has happened. Now, frankly, this is exactly what happens in the television domain. In the television domain, you have two categories of broadcasters in India. There are about a thousand um, television broadcasters in India, out of which half are news broadcasters. The news guys are regulated by the News Broadcasting Standards Authority, and the entertainment guys are regulated by the Broadcast Complaints Council, the BCCCC, uh, and they publish a yearly compendium of every complaint they receive and what action was taken. And this is an independent body they've set up, largely of uh, eminent people from society, including ex-judges and so on. And mostly the and but they enumerate all the complaints they receive and they say, look, this was frivolous for whatever reason, or this action was taken or a fine was imposed on this particular channel. Now, what the government is saying is you bring the same thing for intermediaries. Essentially, what the government is saying is, and I think this is part of the larger debate, if you take get aside from the local debate in India between uh, is this an attempt to put freedom of speech and all of that, fundamentally, all of these platforms are profit earning platforms. They are not in it for social good necessarily. If, you are, if India is a large market and you are making money in India, should you follow the laws of India or should you follow the laws of the United States? It's as simple as that. Fundamentally, that's what it is about. Um, now, that's one issue, that's one issue. The second is what happens to news. And that's a much deeper, much more complic- complicated thing beyond the social media. So I'll stop there um, and we can take this
0: I, I, I want to come back to that news element later. But
2: before we go there,
0: uh, I want to just quickly ask you that the government is claiming that the, these new rules, uh, social media and related online content, the platforms will be able to self-regulate themselves right? Uh, what does that mean in this context? Uh, I mean, if I, 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 mean, I, I think that if they were able to self-regulate themselves, they would be doing so already, right? But clearly there's a gap somewhere
2: uh, that's not happening. So what does, what, what, what does that mean? So what that means, Karthik, is that, uh, again, I'll give you the example of television. So self-regulation has always been a mixed bag, right? Um, uh, and that's inherent in the question you asked. But in the case of television, not so in print, because print was already legislated in India by various acts. And there's a press council that already exists Um, in the case of television, what they did with self-regulation was they set up independent bodies and the government recognized them as quasi legal bodies. They were set up by getting people from outside the media platforms or a combination of people who are within platforms and outside who, including judges, who were supposed to provide compliance. Now, um, in this case, now the point is the the self-regulation only worked when there was a stick that either you self-regulate or we will step in. In which case, you will will run the risk of of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In the case of television, this happened. Television existed without self-regulation legally until 2008, satellite television. But when there were questions asked about the television coverage of the Mumbai riots, for example, live coverage happened of the commandos. Uh, jumping uh, jumping uh, onto the onto the hotel with a terrorist were. There were lots of questions asked. That's when the industry decided to self-regulate. What, what does this mean for OTT now? It means, one, you set up a code of ethics for online news, OTT platforms and digital media, which industry signs off to as industry bodies, one. Two, you create a, a formal legal system of self-classification of content for OTT platforms. So you say, what, what kind of content is available for universal viewing, what is for seven plus, what is for people who are 16 plus in age and what is adult uh, content. So you do a self classification of the kind that exists on film already, which is, which is governed by the, uh, uh, by the, by the film regulation, uh, 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 film classification board. And then um, for news on digital media, you're required to observe norms of journalistic conduct and so on. And then you build a three tier mechanism. So first, a uh, point of recall for anyone who has a grievance is to the, is to the platform itself. Uh, if it's not resolved, then you go to the industry body, which, which becomes like a outside body outside of the platform. And if it's not done, then you go to the INB ministry. Now the the devil as always lies in the detail, you can make these platforms, these bodies as, um, powerful or as useless as you want to. In the case of television, uh, I can give you an example. Uh, the self-regulation has worked much better in the case of entertainment programming, in the case of news programming, it has not, not worked very well. And that's really a function of whether you make it mandatory and whether you make the, the problem with self-regulation on television was it wasn't made compulsory for everyone to join it. So what it meant was, if I'm a broadcaster, I join the body and the body gives a decision against me. I just walk out and nobody can do anything to me about it. If, if the, if the body has regulatory teeth to take action against me and it's compulsory, then it's meaningful. And those are things that have to be worked out in the nitty-gritty. That nitty-gritty has not been worked out on television in detail. And certainly, this is all a big question mark for digital right now. Uh,
0: Narayan, uh, the government also insists that these new rules will, and I quote here, level the playing field, uh, that online content will be regulated in the same way uh, as Nalin mentioned, like newspapers, television, and film. Uh, former IT minister, uh, uh, Ravishankar Prasad, or even went as far as calling these rules progressive uh, and liberal, and they will hold these social media platforms accountable. Uh, but several newspapers, including your, yours, the Hindu, have been uh, quite openly uh, critical of this stance. Uh, the the um, Editors Guild have also uh, criticized these new rules. What's your take on this? Um, is the government being disingenuous?
1: Well, that's a, a, a important question, Karthik. And I think, you know, regarding our own view on this, firstly, we have highlighted both sides of the debate. Uh, firstly, it's, as I think even Nalan mentioned, it's part of a much broader debate that not only goes further back in time in India, but also, you know, is a global debate indeed. And uh, across liberal democracies, people, different governments, different civil societies have come up with different answers. Uh, as as Nalin said, again, to the details about how they are going to regulate these entities. Um, So I think, firstly, let let me highlight both sides. So uh, in terms of the critique that we've brought uh, to the table uh, regarding the latest rules, we have had concerns that we've highlighted regarding forcing especially digital news publishers uh, to adhere to this three-tier structure of regulation, principally because, you know, there is a government committee at the apex. So I think, you know, this is again, a long-standing debate, freedom of the press and freedom of expression in India, having a free press is important to democracy and to democratic processes. And when you have a government authority that uh, as an escalation matrix, uh, you know, for complaints is sitting at the very top and adjudicating that potentially has a chilling effect on free speech. So the second issue that we've been looking at is what is the concept of traceability. So especially in the context of WhatsApp, which advertises and indeed has offers end-to-end encryption of messages uh, between users. Uh, The government in the latest regulations uses the phrase security of the state Mm -hmm. as a justification for kind of uh, jumping over the, the hurdle of traceability, that is to demand traceability of messages, that is to identify the originators of these messages. Uh, we have drawn attention to the fact that security of the state as a criterion for doing that is broadly defined, uh, if not vague. Uh, and similarly to uh, where the government has uh, says that the rules will, will require such tra- traceability to be available to detect or prevent an offense, that is the language used, uh, that gives executive authorities much broader reign to identify people potentially even before any offense has been committed. And our concern uh, as a media entity uh, is that this again could be used to stifle freedom of the press, particularly where there is that, you know, institutionalized tension between the press a uh, free press and the government in terms of being the, uh, entity that actually critiques the government so that that is an important function within the democratic setup that we feel could be challenged by these rules uh secondly i think we've also drawn concern we've uh, we've pointed concern to uh the fact that it is because these are rules rather than a law it has basically been slapped on by an executive authority rather than as a combination of a legislative process that is a new act enacted by parliament, which is then maybe uh, through further debate, uh, substantiated and supported by a judicial order. So that would have lent it much more credence in terms of its legal standing. And, uh, you know, instead of uh, allowing the government through rules to have sort of an intrusive uh, tool to look at what messages have been posted by the many, many millions of users on the platform. It would have been to have couched this in legal and uh, sort of in, in, in terms of judicial orders and a legislative uh, act would have lent much more credence to this process where complaints or um, challenges have, would be raised against these going forward, as indeed has happened. So WhatsApp has filed cases in the high court, and it is being challenged. And it is only through such challenges that uh, further definition is given to the terms within the rules or the criteria within which uh, such traceability can be unpacked or traceability can be provided. So this, what is security of the state actually mean? So that would have been further, could have been more clearly defined. Had, the, had these rules instead of being rules that come in the form of an act. So we have we have highlighted the need for that. So having said that and having critiqued this act on, on the one side, we have also in our various editorials and subsequent uh, reportage also uh, recognized that, as Nalin also said, you cannot do away with regulation or the need for regulation. So nowhere, I think in no liberal democracy anywhere has any government or even a civil society acceded to a claim made by one of these intermediaries that you know, they are the harbingers of democracy or they are inherently the entities that <coughs> uphold democratic values. There is no such thing. I mean, that argument falls apart even on a very, you know. let me give you an example. So even on this question of uh, let's say the Wuhan uh, lab leak theory for the COVID-19, uh, for COVID-19, uh, Last year, it was seen as being maybe, you know, conspiratorial, uh, conspiracy theory uh, and, you know, posts regarding that were considered to be inflammatory. But again, the entire debate shifted this year after the Biden administration in the U.S. actually decided to look into it. So to say, even if you look at it at an issue level, the issue itself flips from one side to another, depending on the context and therefore to up a social media entity's view on it as the final adjudicated view is completely naive and frankly inconsistent with democratic understanding. So um, so I think that is the case and similarly uh, in India uh, while we have you know we have we have looked closely at what Nalan correctly said was the safe harbor clause given where, a social media intermediary is not legally liable for postings on on the platform. Uh, it, there are distinctions between the way India has, ha, has to deal with this issue versus, let's say, the U.S. So the Snowden, Edward Snowden ep- episode, the saga revealed that, uh, you know, uh, under U.S. law, uh, these social media entities actually have inbuilt, uh, you know, backdoor entries, uh, yeah. even, you know, the likes of Google and so on where the uh, U- United States uh, national, uh, the NSA can actually surveil, can look at signals data with coming out of it and has means to, to, uh, to identify where there is, let's say, a terrorist threat originating. Uh, in India, we don't have that. These are global social media companies uh, with lo- a lot of their legal uh, and, uh, you know, indeed physical infrastructure based in the U S or based in uh, Third-party locations and therefore not subject to Indian jur- legal jurisdiction. So I think Indian, uh, the Indian government has fewer options uh, to actually, you know, pr- prise apart such data where there is a genuine need. I'm talking about, like I said, you know, terrorism threats, child pornography, serious other sexual offenses, uh, things that are completely contravene under Indian law. Um, But I think the the real question is, when the Indian government now does this, when it uh, jumps in there and actually manages to find a means to get, let's say, WhatsApp to break uh, end-to-end encryption, are there any other protections where there aren't, uh, you know, those who are those who are not responsible for any legal violation, any of their data privacy to be uh, violated. So this goes to the broader point that in India it is also a case of other laws unrelated to these rules being remedied uh, before tackling this. So you know data privacy under the Justice Sri Krishna uh, draft uh, has been a has been an important issue that that needs to be tackled. it is yet to be tackled there is no clear data privacy law which provides, protection to the extent that it could be a bulwark against data privacy being violated through uh, intermediary regulation that we're talking about here. Similarly, you know, it is well known in India that uh, both on the investigative side as well as the judicial side, legal cases take extremely long to be resolved where you know the process becomes the punishment and so forth so if you Im- improve the efficiency of the ju- judicial process of investigatory of law enforcement agencies if you empowered them to deliver deliver justice i put that in quotes but to deliver justice in a more timely manner then you know it they perhaps the government would not require social media intermediaries to completely break encryption. Uh, they may, for example, get enough contextual data from the metadata packages without actually going into the, the actual content of each posting or message. So it, in India, it's also the uh, my, my broader point is that if you, we have drawn attention to this again in the Hindu, if you Remedy bring legal remedy to other aspects of Indian law and legal and regulatory frameworks, you would aid the Indian government in its mission to deliver justice, again, I'd keep that in quotes, but without requiring a level of regulation of social media that even in countries such as the US, the UK and the EU, uh, they have not required. Uh, Even under the Patriot Act of the US and so forth, there isn't actually a requirement to break end-to-end encryption. But as I said, again, that is because they have other legal infrastructure in place, which does not require them to do
2: that. So I'll leave it at Uh, that. I want to add something to this, Karthik, which is this, that uh, on the question of digital news, and I I think the way the discourse has moved with big media around the digital news regulations uh, has been quite instructive, uh, which is this, that from the very beginning, most of the big media in this country supported regulations on social media. In fact, they lobbied for it, right? Um, Even in February, when this first came out, uh, Karthik uh, Narayan has talked about the Hindu. Uh, I think most big media actually was supportive of the regulations. Then they realized that this will also impact on them. uh, uh, And then the the positioning shifted a little bit uh, on that. So if you see the discourse, originally it was the DNPA, the Digital News Publishers Authority, uh, uh, um, which which represents the smaller media guys, print um, um uh, a newspaper. news minute. Okay. These guys were the ones who were protesting originally. Now you see the people who joined the lawsuit, PTI, the Press Trust of India has joined it. I think Indian Express has joined it as well. Uh, the Times Group has has, has has sort of uh, also shifted its position significant, uh, a little bit on this. The reason for that is, see, uh, on, on digital news and what it did to the digital news from the very beginning, there's always been a gray... Uh, Twilight Zone, which is this. For example, the Press Information Bureau, as Narayan would know very well, it did not recognize digital news journalists uh, until these regulations were brought out as journalists. So if I am a journalist which works for Times of India Digital, I will not be accredited with um, um, with the PIB, no matter what my experience. Even though I'm writing for TOI, but if I'm on the print side, and I, uh, I will be accredited. Um, now, that was one. Second was that the, uh, the point that Narayan raised, that the about legislation, the IT Act had several issues with it. Um, the Supreme Court, for example, um, one of its clauses was struck down by the Supreme Court on uh, on misuse earlier. Uh, that has not been followed in letter and spirit by several state governments. We also, various people have documented that. The question is, can a follow-on um, regulatory move be more stringent than the original legislation that that empowers it? Right. So that's that, that's a that's a key question which I think Narayan has also talked about. the The point I want to make is. So so one, there are three strands to this debate. The first is what happens to the traditional media vis-a-vis the new media in the space of news. So there I think um, uh, the big media has now moved its positioning a little bit. Second is, what is the definition of news? Should Facebook and Twitter and uh, platforms like Instagram, do they get covered under news or not? And, And I think that's a very important ideational debate because... Trump, for example, when he was banned from Twitter, whether you like Trump or not, that's an editorial call to ban a person. Um, When um, uh, the Facebook, for example, uh, uh, flags RT Russia Today as a government-owned media channel, it does not so do so for Voice of America. Why? Voice of America is also funded by the state. Voice of America has many political appointees, especially under the Trump Trump regime, under the Trump administration. So there are there are lots of slippages in this. For example, you have you have community guidelines put up by Twitter and Facebook in various places. Those community guidelines, when I was running Times of India digital, every second day, or uh, actually literally every day, we would get into dispute. But they would flag several of our of, of our content pieces, saying this violates our guidelines. What, what, I, and what, I'll give you an example. There's a naxalite bomb blast in Maharashtra. We have not put anything which is objectionable. We have mof the pictures. They will say this upsets our community. Are, who are you to decide here? Yeah? By, if you are saying they upset your community, then you're acting like an editor. Then you're acting like a, 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 like a gatekeeper. And, and if you are acting like an editor, and you're not a platform. Should you not be governed by the laws of journalism? It's as simple as that. So, so there is a lot of hypocrisy and slippage between what the big tech says, uh, on, reg- uh, on being intermediary versus control and what they actually do. In fact, Narayan would know every media organization in India half their significant amount of their content is often flagged by the big tech guys as violating their policy. That policy by nature is subjective. as, as simple as that. It's not some board who's doing doing it um, um, you know, on, on an automatic basis. So that's one. The final point is that, um, and this is something that the government has raised. Uh, when you had the attack on Capitol on Capitol Hill in Washington, um, very quickly, a lot of stuff was done by the big tech guys. When you have something on red for now we can have differing views uh, on uh, based on our political positioning, whether you're for the Palmer protest or against it or agnostic to it, when uh, fundamentally, if there is something happening on a national symbol, shouldn't the same yardstick be used, whether whatever your politics, but the same yardstick was not used by Big Tech on Redford, vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis uh, So then you're taking subjective calls Then you're getting into the area of what editors and journalists do and, and they should be free to do whatever position they take. Um, for example, even within, within journalism, if you plot on a continuum, uh, between the Hindu and TOI and and say the Republic, there is a continuum of of positioning. No, whether you are left of centre, centrist, right of centre, big tech often takes these positions uh, in terms of in terms of flagging thing. Uh, so 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 they are not uh, some some neutral players in this. Let's okay. let's be clear about it. Finally, um, and this is something which Ravi Shankar Prasad, who is now no more the IT minister now, he did point out. He, um, uh, in the case of the Red Fort, for example, when Singapore raised raised a question on some content. Within two hours, the thing was taken off air. Um, when India raises it, why, why do you take one and a half weeks to respond? You can question whether India was right in, question, in raising that complaint or not. But you can't have yard, different yardsticks for complaining to different people on, on several things. No. It's as simple as that. So now the devil is, do you, when you bring in these regulations, they uh, are you making it worse than what it already was? Uh, or have you built in enough safeguards to make sure that it is not some subterfuge to bring state-state capture of of this thing. So I, I think that's what the debate should be, and that's what is is the gritty that we really have to debate about.
0: So I want to get to a couple of points that 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 both of you raised. Uh, the first is how is this going to affect journalism on the ground? Right. From the way I see it. Um, as, as, as Narayan mentioned, the, 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 the rules stand to uh, dent in, um, encryption. Um, platforms and services will probably have to compromise on that, uh, which also poses numerous problems in terms of loss of privacy, data breaches, uh, which are more problematic since you know, we, do, we do not have a, a legislation or a framework uh, for that right now. Uh, and news platforms like the Wire or the, the, the News Minute uh, will probably suffer more from these new regulations than the bigger uh, news you know, players like the Hindu and the Indian Express. So, How is it going to affect uh, journalism on the ground? N- Narayan, first. Me...
1: Yeah. So you're absolutely right, Karthik, to look at the smaller... Uh, media organizations uh, with a little greater concern. Um, indeed, you know, with them, their financial model uh, itself has been uh, one that has had challenges over the years. In the sense that, you know, um, online revenues from advertising and so forth have not really reached the level where they have in the West, where you know, media organizations have entirely pivoted from print to online to survive and indeed some of them like the New York Times to really make a workable financial model out of it. Uh, In this case, uh, in in India's case, smaller media organizations which are purely online, and you've listed a few of them, have had to rely on, you know, more ad hoc funding methods whether it's from just from the private sector, from donations, from individual subscribers and so forth and their survival is not yet clear in the digital decades that have, of the 21st century. Um, and that is the, the further context to that is also that, yes, some of them, uh, you can look at, for example, The Wire, have been quite um, on the front foot in terms of being willing to take on uh, crit- crit- uh, to, to being willing to criticize uh, public policy, to take on specific governments, whether state or center, and that has not helped with their advertising revenue either in the sort of response matrix that you'd have there. Um, so in the context of these rules, uh, to have that three level grievance procedure mm-hmm. um, and sort of the compliance requirements that come with it. And like Nalin said, it's all about the details. You know, it will entail a lot of the paperwork. It may entail further uh, you know, recruitment of staff uh, in those roles. Uh, It can be uh, a make or break blow over time. Uh, I'm not saying there's no news that we've had so far that this has happened because firstly, these rules are, you know, they're gathering momentum now and it remains to be seen how much they will impact such organizations. Uh, But at the same time, one can visualize a situation where, you know, uh, whether on the left or the right, it is possible for users or even indeed, you know, um, collective actors uh, who are using let's say what you call toolkit activism to overwhelm a certain organization. So you know if I have uh, you know several thousands of people bombarding a grievance officer at one such organization within a day, uh, you know you could completely debilitate the mechanism and uh, you could you could bring them to their knees. Uh, it could be genuine complaints, but you could also have situations of spurious complaints uh, which can target, Uh, These organizations. So yes, I think the question that you raised of impact on journalism by these digital news players, it's quite a real one. It is not yet manifested. And as I said, but there is a chance, there is a risk of that going forward. Uh, I think for the broader picture, which includes not only digital news providers, but even larger players such as ourselves uh, at the Hindu uh, encryption, as we know, is often vital to protecting sources, um, and they're they critical to substant. That is critical to substantive journalism, uh, especially when we're trying to carry out our investigative and truth-telling functions, where you often rely on sources which have proximity to the government, or you have you know whistleblowers, and uh, you require that level of protection to be provided to sources in order to bring uh, a realistic measure of. Uh, truth to the table in the the sense of information that runs contrary to the narrative that has been put out by uh, state authorities. So I think, uh, again, I will highlight the point that if we had robust legal, robust infrastructure, institutional or legal in other regards, let's say, such as whistleblower protection, then you could at least to an extent rely on that in order to say, okay, let, we can do, have a compromise situation here where, you know, uh, encryption can be partially uh, opened up or you can, you can have decryption. So, uh, but at the same, like I said, we don't have, like in the United States, you have uh, the, I think it's called the false claims act where you have whistleblower protection for those who are blowing the whistle against the government in India, that is pretty much non-existent. You do have a whistleblowers uh, protection framework for those who are blowing the whistle or bringing complaints against the private sector or private actors. Um, so if you had if you had remedies in that regard, you could think about you could go further towards making compromises here. Um, and then again, as I mentioned earlier, there is a question of really. Getting into the details, as Nalan said, on metadata decryption to solve some of the problems, there could be halfway measures on traceability where the government has confidence that it can find the originators of unlawful messages uh, without compromising others who have not uh, originated such messages, but maybe their privacy may be compromised in that that process. Um, And again, like I said, there's also a question of broader concepts being unpacked, for example, sedition law or public order threats. These are being debated within our democratic process, uh, and journalism is impacted by that. So, you know, the law and sedition, as we know, again, is quite uh, anachronistic. It, is, it comes from the colonial era, the way it is uh, enforced today in India. And there's a In recent decades, especially, there's been an intensifying debate on unpacking the context in which that can be applied. Similarly, public order threats. So I think when the government enjoys wide powers in interpreting these laws and foisting charges on individuals or or other entities based on these laws, uh, if you are able to define them, if the courts can tackle that, or if the parliament can legislate greater clarity on that, then this doesn't become a digital platforms issue. Then you can separately deal with the digital platforms without harming journalism as such, because journalism is impacted by these broader legal questions. Uh, Uh, And finally, yeah, so let me leave it at that. You can, we can pick it apart further.
0: Nalan, I wanna come back to you on another point. Um, You talked about how other countries are also going about trying to Mm. uh, regulate social media, uh, big tech, Uh, Can you place these new IT rules in a broader global context? Um, Could the Indian government have gone even further by, say, maybe expecting these platforms to release their algorithms to researchers so they can actually understand what happens in terms of why certain forms of content get amplified and why that causes harm? Uh, Mm. So... Could they have gone further? And and what are some of the lessons that other
2: countries, especially developing countries, can draw from these IT rules? So I think there are two uh, to simplify a very complex debate. Uh, there are two big, broad touch points that characterizes debate in all liberal democracies. One is on the question of monopolies uh, and uh, and the big guys dominating the field, and second is on the question of content, whether the social media intermediaries are public should should they be seen as publishers or or not or are they purely intermediaries so i think if you compare between the us the uk eu and australia uh, india is broadly in tune uh with some variation with the broader trend um so for example on eu on the questions on of whether they are platform the publishers the answer the, has tilted uh, toward the side of them being publishers. So, for example, the EU award its copyright laws in 2019, where Google and Facebook were asked to pay publishers. There's a big push on monopoly controls in the EU on antitrust issues, data protection, digital sovereignty. There is now a draft European digital regulations, which are currently being debated on digital the, the, the Digital Services Act, the DSA, and the, and the Digital Markets Act, the DMA. In fact, uh, just in the last two months alone, um, France, Germany, and the Netherlands have actually uh, publicly said that EU is being too soft and big tech. Um, The the EU must be bold and uh, defend its digital sovereignty. And here, I'm actually paraphrasing headlines from the global press on statements given by the relevant ministries in these these countries. Um, um, There is an alignment on this. If you look at Australia, um, the Australians decide there was a big thing between Google and Facebook. In fact, uh, Google uh, uh, actually put out publicly that if, this goes through uh, uh users within australia will not have access to search a uh, search mm-hmm. function so uh, australians did, uh, for example uh, 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 google uh, w- did did say that uh, australia decided to treat them more in the direction of them being publishers so now a deal has been worked out now there are issues around that deal between newscorp uh, and uh, and big tech on, on payment for content uh, but in general calls uh, there is an alignment in liberal democracies to rein in tech titans and that is that is happening um I think the EU is more or less following Australia's lead in making big tech pay for news. Um, but the, the Americans and the UK have gone more in the direction of, of antitrust probes to begin with. This is more or less a repeat of, uh, or analogous to what happened with Microsoft in the nineties and earlier, what happened with AT&T and the big telecom companies in the 1930s, uh, on, on, on that. Um, if you look at, um, free speech issues on big tech, um, this is data put out by Facebook uh, on the number of requests made by governments uh, to Facebook to get user data, the highest number of of this data released by Facebook, uh, by the Facebook Transparency Center, um, the highest number uh, last year was from the United States and that was 122,000 requests to take down content. Uh, India was around 75,000 requests and, and the next was Brazil and so on. So I think different versions of this are playing out everywhere uh, uh, it's it's just that different countries are biting different parts of this choosing to bite choosing which part of this to bite first uh, uh with what with and, and or, with, or, or with different kind of intensity but everybody's circling around to the same big issues that's that's one the other point i want to make is that uh, on the question of news that narayan was talking about uh, i think this is not just about what's the impact of these regulations there is a big fundamental problem on business models around news with digital has brought in uh, and that's happening everywhere on the future of news itself the business model simply doesn't work anymore and on digital it doesn't work at all uh, in, in, even with the guardian the guardian when Al, when alan wasbridge was the editor they they decided to go for a global audience what what does the guardian and wire do now they essentially ask readers to pay in the interest of self-interest journalism that's essentially going the csr way that's essentially going the ngo route because the business model does not exist or or nobody has cracked the business model so far. Maybe somebody cracks it tomorrow, but nobody cracked it so far. Um, also, this distinction between digital and traditional is, I think, basically irrelevant now. Uh, in three to four years' time or five years' time, and I'm putting an outer limit to this, uh, you may not find the newspaper existing at all in its in the current form. India is the only outlier where the newspaper actually exists uh, in, in any serious form uh, out of all countries. China was the outlier till three or four years back, but in China the print market collapsed completely. In, in America, the print market has collapsed, collapsed completely. Only only some players are left. The New York Times, Washington Post, and Washington Post has only survived because it made a digital transformation. So did New York Times. Um, uh, 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 the FT, The Economist, everything, everybody's in the same boat. There's a much larger question mark. See, historically, even before digital came, when first radio came, then television came, even before that, um, news has always been a very small market. In fact, historically, the big news organizations in the in the West, largely survived because they were, uh, or, or they made money because they were parts of larger conglomerates where entertainment guys made money and news was subsidized. Um, news by itself has never been a very, been a very large money-making enterprise. So largely it, it goes, uh, if you are a, a very public spirited entrepreneur who owns it and you decide to do it in the public interest, which is the case in, in, in uh, uh, but if you list it uh, and if you make it a commercial entity, uh, there's very little to say for news as a commercial entity. Historically, that that was the case with CNN as well. Uh, um, CNN was part of a much much larger conglomerate. Um, Fox News was part of uh, was part of part of uh, the News Corp uh, empire. So there there is that category, and then there's a public broadcaster. The BBC has always been around because it's funded by the uh, by yeah. by a license fee for for every uh, person who buys a TV set. Even that's going away now. So uh, Al Jazeera is funded because because the the Qatar royal family decides to fund it. So there is a much larger question mark on the future of news on this. This digital versus print or traditional media, let's say traditional media, television and so on, that's completely merging. Television is completely turning into OTT now. So I think the the news media regulations are adding one more element to a much larger thing, um, um in, uh, to your other question on whether it's uh, a wire and print and so on. Yes. The small guys will always find it far more difficult to comply. It's un- unlikely they'll be able to comply because, they're, because they're just too small. So just like in the larger digital space, where it's the the internet was always seen as a profusion of everybody, of, 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 you know there were these multiple flowers that bloomed. But eventually, the internet economy is going towards the big guys, and that's what the bigger debate is. Even on search engines, it's Google that dominates, right? Uh, or the big guys who, who can who can survive uh, within even every look at Zomato, uh, it's the big guys who have the money to spend. The same thing is happening in EdTech, and the same thing is happening in the media now. You're going back to, back to the future in some ways.
0: One final question. And I want to go to Nalan first and then come to Narayan. What is the future of the internet in India?
2: Right. India is fundamental to the growth of the internet globally. If you look at Google's new Next Billion Users project, that's predicated almost entirely on Asia. Within Asia, it's predicated on Indonesia and India. And India is the biggest chunk of that. One, uh, largely because China is firewalled for, from big tech, right? So China is off limits. So what's left? Where do you grow? You've maxed out growth in the in the developed West. You will only grow here. Now you look at the, uh, now what does that mean? The nature of the internet is fundamentally changing in India. Why? Because in India connectivity issues are different. So, so uh, for example, the changes that Google made uh, on its uh, Google Maps uh, app, for example, that was designed specifically for the Indian market where connectivity is low. The second thing, which is fundamentally different about the internet in India is that it is largely growing on the back of regional languages, regional languages are what are driving the growth of the internet, not English at all. And I think the big tech guys have realized that you look at Facebook, look at Google, they're focusing entirely, almost all the energies on moving commerce online and in the regional languages Two. The third thing is it's been driven in the regional languages, contrary to popular perception by video and audio. The number of voice searches you have on Google in the regional languages is is of a magnitude which is multiple times of what happens in English. Um, um, so, um, which is what it means is for the for the next billion users project for Google or Facebook or for everybody else, what it means is that the products they are going to be making now and are already making or have already made in the last couple of years are all predicated on regional languages and on video and audio. So video was really growing a couple of years back. It's still expanding. Last year, you saw the inflection point for podcasts in India uh, uh, during the lockdown uh, in 2020. And podcasts and audio has really taken off. The other thing which is really taking off from last year is the inflection point is gaming. These three things are what are driving the internet, but the basic structure is regional languages.
0: Now, Ryan, in addition to what Nalin mentioned on the future of the internet, can the internet sustain in India without a social and legal ecosystem that supports free and open expression?
1: Yeah, I was uh, going to interpret that question in terms of media and politics and, you know, regarding the future of the internet. So I totally agree with what Nalin said. Um, but I'd like to add to that to say that, um, you know, firstly, from the media's perspective, I think it is not so much that news and news media are going to uh, cease to exist or going to dwindle away for lack of revenue models. Uh, I think you know, news, uh, never has so much news been consumed as it is today, and that, that does go up. The real question is, um, over time, you know, can organizations find the right forms to deliver it, whether it's audio or video, as Nolan said again, uh, which make it economically or financially feasible to run an organization around it. Now, I think the observation that the New York Times and the Washington Post and others have pivoted towards digital transformation and reinvented their newsrooms and reinvented the way they deliver news and the devices on which they deliver news, that that has made them survive. That is a correct, absolutely factually right observation. I think many Indian news organizations, including us at The Hindu are uh, in the process of doing that, uh, we have quite a long way to go. But again, I do think it's going to be a few years, maybe um, few, maybe lesser years because of the pandemic. But a few years, nevertheless, before we hit that absolute, you know, crunch barrier where you know there is nothing left in print. Print continues to be a thriving model here because of even today growing literacy, growing uh, penetration of, uh, you know, just appreciation of news, whether in vernacular language or in English across the countryside. So that is one. The second regarding the future of the internet, uh, which you asked me about in terms of having the requisite institutional frameworks to support it. I think much more than the West, the very tenets of democracy uh, and you know the role of dissent in democracy continue to be debated in India today. We are in a situation where for at least two general elections now, you've had what a lot of people have observed to be the reduced power of the opposition parties in parliament. Uh, You have seen the growing footprint of one party or one alliance across the country, across even state governments, uh, you know, the, the administration of states across India. And so you've seen a dwindling of democratic resistance or, you know, the sort of force and counterforce dynamic that you see in many, many liberal democracies across the world. And so in such a context, I think the debate around the Internet's future, including questions such as what we've discussed today, rules uh, governing the operation of social media intermediaries, that gains a very different color uh, to, let's say, you know, the West where you have a very, very deep and sophisticated institutionalization of legal mechanisms, like whether we're talking about whistleblower protections, whether we're talking about uh, judicial institutions that deliver justice in a timely manner, those institutions are already strong in, in, in these other countries, whereas in India, they are not. Therefore, I think the, uh, this will be a much more contested debate uh, in terms of, should we be allowing the government such a broad mandate to regulate both social media inter- intermediaries, but much more importantly, bring or rather, I would even say drag digital news providers under the same umbrella, or should you try and separate them? And you know, in line with the question that Nalin raised, should you be uh, providing different regulatory cover for the, these two types of entities? Uh, you know, and I'm not underplaying the complexity of these questions, because as again, Nalin said, social media uh, intermediaries are themselves, in some regards, news providers, they channel enormous Mm -hmm. quantities of news to the point where there are real questions today about whether they should be funding news content providers, such as newspapers and digital news providers. So this is a very contested, Uh, question. And as a member of the media, I very much hope that it continues to be contested. What I will really worry about is if there are black and white answers being provided and the debate suddenly tips just one way. Uh, You know, so to me, the fact that WhatsApp and Facebook have uh, filed cases, uh, in addition to uh, numerous, you know, civil liberty activists, they have filed cases, there are, there's in fact an enormous number of cases around the latest rules which are working their way through the courts today, uh, which we've not had the opportunity maybe to touch upon the details of in this conversation. But it's, it's pretty much there for anyone who wants to see to dig up uh, online and find out. Uh, but it is that sort of active debate, uh, you know, which will, which will shape the future of the internet in India, which will shape not the future of the internet but the future of regulation because as I said, the lines are blurring between what is a news organization, what is a social media entity, and how much power should a government, which has very little parliamentary opposition today, how much leeway should such a government have in regulating all of these entities under a single umbrella?
0: We could have definitely gone on and spoken a long, a lot more on these issues. But thank you again, Nalin and Narayan. Uh, You've been listening to another episode of South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. Uh, to know more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. And you can also reach us at Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.